down here to Christchurch from a stint in Wellington, it was about uh, 2015 I think, someone gave me a, a, a packet of tissues, a little, one of those little ones, with keep calm and carry on, and uh, no doubt you've all had a few things like that as well, uh, no doubt thinking that I would still experience a quake or two as we did. And uh, I must say, actually, now we've still got in, in the, over in the office there, keep calm and eat cupcakes, which uh, I think is a sort of a, a nice evolution of that theme. Uh, but I do recall coming on interview down to Bishop Victoria at that stage and up in her office, um, squashed into the sort of little side bit of, of the hall at St. Peter's in Upper Rickerton. She had this big poster on the wall, keep calm and carry on. Uh, so as I was sitting there being interviewed, I, I was sort of had my eyes focused on this poster as well. And actually I remember it was only in about the middle of 2016 that the diocese removed Keep Calm and Carry On, which had been a bit of a strap line uh, going through the, the Crake uh, years uh, from its flyer talking about vacancies in the diocese. And I guess the assumption was that calmness was one of the prime uh, qualities needed in leaders in post-Quake Christchurch. Or perhaps we could reframe it as uh, bloody-minded determination not to let things beat us or to get on top of us. And we have, and as a people, as we've come to 2020. But I guess uh, probably all of us have seen those original Second World War um, posters, the, keep, the original Keep Calm and Carry On uh, posters, which sort of trumpeted that bracing call to, in uh, England during the war to keep on doing your duty and to do your bit whatever happens uh, through blood, sweat, toil and tears. But when we hear those words, keep calm and carry on, perhaps they feel that they don't have a lot of comfort to it. It's more a sort of a dogged determination, a stiff upper lip, that stoic keep on keeping on, which tends towards fatalism and admitting that maybe things are not going to get too much better any time soon. And perhaps as we look to the new year, to 2021, as our world pins all its hopes on a vaccine, as our new government beds in and rapidly gets past that honeymoon stage into the real issues still to be tackled, and as we look out on our world with still so much tension around great powers and a few uh, rogue states, leaders both stable and unstable on the world stage, just where do we find that comfort, reassurance, that advent hope? And I think perhaps that's why there's such huge appeal in those very well-loved words that Bede read from Isaiah 40, comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. And those words were actually first addressed to God's people who were supremely discomforted. Uh, they'd found their city, or their city of Jerusalem had been destroyed and they were taken into exile as a people for 70 years out across the desert to Babylon. And for 70 years, God had said to them, keep calm and carry on. Seek blessing in the place that you found yourself, even in a place of exile. And then only now from Isaiah were starting to come these words of promise and of hope, announcing the Lord is coming to restore God's people to their land. And most of all, restoring them to the covenant relationship that had been broken. Comfort my people, says your God, 
and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Uh, amidst all the broken promises, God never forgets that promise to be God to us. And then that prophecy in Isaiah 40 is then reapplied in our gospel reading from Mark as we enter into Mark's gospel now uh, for this year. John the Baptist is the one who in his day, 400 years uh, later, will announce the coming of the Lord, the Messiah, to restore the people who've long been in exile from God, God's ways. We know they came back to Jerusalem with a hiss and a roar, but gradually, as often so often happens, things sort of went back to normal. People forgot about God. And now John the Baptist strides out into the desert and calls them back into right relationship with God. And it's an incredible thing to think about. I mean, we were talking about this as staff the other day, some of the amazing people movements that have arisen up in our world. Uh, perhaps when the Berlin Wall came down or the Soviet Union uh, fell apart, um, the whole climate change movement, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, all these movements that have arrived are when people have taken their courage into their hands and been prophetic. But probably the last thing we would have said about John the Baptist, and there he is, a rather, rather hairy fellow there, is that his message was comfortable because it wasn't. And he made people very uncomfortable. I think in our uh, day and age, he would be one of the streeties on our streets in Christchurch. And he would be one of those alternative characters, but like James K. Baxter or someone like him, who asks us un uncomfortable questions. One of those poets, perhaps, who comes out with some amazing, challenging things about our lifestyle and pose challenges to our way of living and thinking, uh, things which maybe we have grown comfortable with. And we need those people, don't we? Those John the Baptist figures. And they also exist within our church, or quite often on the edge of it, or sometimes they even are pushed carefully out of it, and they feel like they're on the borders, and yet they still feel compelled to speak out. And I'm so proud of people like that who still keep trying to get their message heard, who really feel that fire in the belly that God is convicting them to speak. Just as there is so often a tension between the institutional church, which gets a bit comfortable, and the prophetic figures who keep challenging it and knocking it and pushing it, so there can also be a sort of a symbiosis, a way of living alongside each other with mutual benefit to each other. It's not easy. It's not always comfortable. There's challenge there, but there's also support if we are willing to learn from each other and to make room for each other. So uncomfortable as they are, there is a place for those John the Baptist figures, the prophets in our midst. I was reading a little bit from uh, an American writer, Flannery O'Connor, and she talks about writing as something that can be prophetic as well. And she says, the work of someone who writes is not to call people just to comfort, but to face reality. And she says this, she says, art, and I think we could add in their faith as well, requires a delicate adjustment of the outer and the inner worlds in such a way that without changing their nature, we can see them through each other. So to really know yourself is also to know your world. And it's also, paradoxically, a sort of exile from that world. 
To know yourself is above all to know what you lack, and it's to measure yourself against truth and not the other way around. So often in our world, we measure truth against ourselves. But John the Baptist was someone who called us back to God's truth and dared to speak God's truth to the people of his time. And he called people um, very straightforwardly, make God's path straight. Align yourself with God's straight ways. Where we've gone crooked, get rid of our crookedness and our ability to bend the truth and to warp it and distort it into half-truths and shadows of the truth. And I think in a world of fake news and alternative facts, we know all about how easy that is to happen. John didn't pull any punches. He was a straight talker too. And it's that straight talk of urgency, of clear-sighted vision of what needs doing, and the sort of clear direction that is needed in a crisis or an emergency. Flannery O'Connor writes again, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs that you do, you can relax a bit and you can use the normal means of talking. But when you have to assume your audience doesn't hold your beliefs, then you have to get your vision out there by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. For the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And that was what John the Baptist did. That's what prophets do in our time. They put it out there and they make it big. So John didn't hesitate to call his audience a brood of vipers, which is hardly the most politest of expressions. But once he's got their expression and their attention and perhaps their indignation, he encourages them back into God's sphere of love and holiness. And he shows them the way back through baptism, for repentance, for the forgiveness of their sins. And I love that image we use in our Lord's Prayer at Messy Church, that wiping away, the way water wipes away the things that we need to let go of. And how powerful that must have been, that there was this amazing people movement out to the River Jordan, which I can tell you near Jerusalem is a very muddy little stream. Um, but there it is, and people flocked out to be there and also committed to change their lives. So Jesus, uh, so John the Baptist there showed them a way to turn from the shadows and to face the light of God's truth that was coming. And he said, there is one coming after me whose light is going to shine even brighter, the coming Christ, the Messiah. He is God's truth and he will be the way, the truth and the life. And so John the Baptist didn't just point out the rough stuff, he did a bit of that, uh, he was fairly blunt, but he also saw the people's potential to turn back, to turn back to God, and he called them back, and he helped them to act that out through a powerful ritual of washing and cleansing. He got people to do something, to put their money where their mouth was, to be baptised. And then that lovely promise, not just... Um, I baptize you here with water, but the one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with God's Spirit himself, the very Spirit of God given to us that God might dwell in us and with us. So John's message, though initially was pretty uncomfortable and challenging, yet finally was that message of hope and truth. 
And I think in a world of so many mixed messages and pseudo-messages and of virtual reality and contriving and manufacturing your own truth, there's actually quite a, a sort of a bracing comfort in hearing the real deal, the truth. And it can actually be a deep relief not to have to maintain that facade that all is well in our world when we know it's not. And we don't have to need to keep that keep calm and carry on image or pretend to a competence we don't in fact possess. When we admit, as we know, that all is not well in our world and that we can't always cope alone and that we need help, it's not something we uh, independent DIY Kiwis find easy, is it? But those times when we hit the wall or hit rock bottom is often that turning point, that crunch point towards looking up to God and reaching up and finding the help we need, that hand extended as John the Baptist was, and then that hand that pointed to Jesus and say, come and find here new life and new hope and new community together. Many have spoken, as you'll know, about Christchurch since the quakes, and even in this last year of that sense of neighbourliness and looking out for one another, that sense of building relationships of trust and friendship and relying again on other people when the going gets tough, building bridges rather than living behind fences. And we know that in a crisis or an emergency, we can do that but we also know how easy it is to revert to that I've got it all together independence and self-sufficiency. And so Advent is that wake-up call. It's that time of being real, of taking off our masks, as we've done in more ways than one this year, but also stripping down to basics, getting into desert wear, if you like, um, only having the things that we need, letting go when the world's overdressing and overdecorating. It's actually what we do here in Advent, profoundly countercultural, when Christmas is sort of coming at us and heaping it all up. We actually try to listen for God's voice and God's truth in the midst of a myriad of other voices coming at us. And we know that God's voice will last into the new year. It's a promise that won't go away. And I hope for all of us that God's voice and God's truth will be like that compass point that orients us back again. Some of you might be doing a bit of orienteering or uh, getting out there over the summer, perhaps looking for penguins in our town. But I love the way that on a compass, God's voice, God's truth orient us back uh, before God as God's children, when there are so many competing forces that would sway us out of plumb. It's like that fulcrum uh, that will bring us back into God's presence and into God's love. Frederick Birkner, who's another uh, prophet, I think, of the 20th century, says, in the Bible, to repent doesn't just mean to feel sorry. It means to turn around 180 degrees undergo a complete change of mind and heart and direction. Turn away from madness and cruelty and shallowness. Turn towards tolerance, compassion, hope and justice. All that we have deep within us at our best. There's a lovely image in the Psalms, just a couple of verses that I want to end with, where God promises all the things that will be in God's kingdom and God's new world. And it's a beautiful picture, picture image, really. 
Mercy and faithfulness meet together. Justice and peace embrace each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from heaven. Justice will go before you, and the path before your feet will be peace. So as we move through this Advent season together, as we honour the prophets like John the Baptist and the prophets among us and beyond us as they speak to us, may we too keep looking for Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, the light. And may we commit to live into God's kingdom this Advent tide and always. Amen.